I have a dream that all men are created equal. Hello everyone, Your Story, Episode 10. Welcome back. How about that? Episode 10. We've finally made the first of hopefully many, many milestones. Thanks to everyone who's been out there supporting me from the very beginning. Really appreciate it. Hopefully I'm getting better at this. Hopefully you're enjoying it a lot more. And as we get along, we'll meet more and more people and continue to polish this rough diamond up and see if we can make it shine fairly well. There's a website, remember, yourstorypodcast.com. You can leave a comment over there. There's an email link. The email is chat at yourstorypodcast.com. And you can get hold of me that way or leave a comment so that other people can read what you think and how you're feeling about it. This being episode 10, I'd like to ask a small favor now that I've reached a bit of a milestone. If you go to iTunes, you can actually leave a bit of a comment in the iTunes. That way, other people who maybe come across my site can see what you think of it. It also helps too because... By you leaving a comment on iTunes, it actually gives what I'm doing a little bit more value and it makes it a little bit easier to fi- for people to find me. If you'd like to do that, I'd really appreciate it. It'd be very cool. The music I'm getting from IOTA Promonet, just like to ask you to consider buying. Yeah, if you buy from them, you look after them, you look after me, you look after yourself. Everybody wins, nobody loses. It's all got just good. I've been working for quite a long time. I'm not a young fella. And I've worked with many very, very cool people. Some of the coolest people I've ever met and worked with have been in the film industry. They're an interesting group of people. They, the film industry tends to attract a certain type of personality, fairly energetic, fairly technically savvy, and very, very competent. They also, from my reckoning, are a fairly intelligent group of people mainly because to have that level of competency you've got to be a reasonably bright person and because they live on the fringe of society in a lot of ways with the sort of work they do and the fact that it's spasmodic work they tend to look at the world through a different set of filters to a lot of the normal people one of those people that i met when i was working on matrix two and three back in 2001 was dave goldie dave's a fascinating person we spent far too many times talking in the workshop it's one of the reasons why I actually reference to doing this podcast is because I enjoy that conversation. And when I meet somebody who is interesting and engaging, I find it very hard to leave them alone. And it's actually got me in trouble over the years too. So here I am doing it, you know, hopefully, you know, as a bit more of a passion and we'll see where this goes. But in getting to know Dave, I had a great deal of respect for the way he sees the world and the sort of things that he's got up to. And that's why I invited him on the show, because I wanted to discuss with him this adventuring spirit and you'll see as we get into this we talk about that we talk about this future project that he's got coming up in april and i think it's an interesting rave this is dave's story it's 11th february 2008 sitting here with dave goldie dave's an old friend of mine i worked with him on a uh, on the matrix two and three films Uh, and we're sitting in his little unit overlooking Tamarama Beach in the Pacific Ocean. It's a stunning day, stunning day in Sydney. Welcome on the show, Dave. Thanks. The reason I invited you on this is 
I've, I've, I enjoyed working with you and I enjoyed talking to you and I enjoyed your intellect and your, your twisted view on life, this subtle version of uh, cynicism that you have. And, cynical? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I also want to discuss this adventuring spirit of yours. Right. And... Uh, yeah, everyone wants to talk about that. Do they? Yeah. Well, and here's this... a quick way for a lot of people to find out about it in a hurry. <laughs> well, I was saying to someone the other day that really, if you have to ask, you're never going to know. I mean, I'm not. I don't think that's. I'm not. That doesn't apply to you because I think you've got a bit of it in you as well. But where I was talking more in general, like there's this massive industry of the first thing everyone asks is, "Oh, are you filming it? Is it going to be on TV?" You know, and there's this automatic assumption that if you're doing something extreme or adventurous got to be on TV and I don't actually think you can put a real adventure on TV there's no room on television for something that's really there's no room on TV for anything that's really genuinely new and I mean you can you can go and have a packaged pre-packaged adventure which isn't an adventure at all mm. that, that story fits on TV everyone knows that story you're going to climb Mount Everest you know Everyone knows that story. There's no problem telling that one. But, you know, if this trip we're about to do to Canada, to Hudson Bay, we don't know how it's going to go because it's never been done before. Okay, well, let's, before we go any further, for mm. those who are listening, let's right, fill us in. Going... And tell me about it. I only know the glimpse, okay. the smallest idea of it. What are you doing? Well, I've got mixed up with these guys that are into kite skiing and for a couple of years now have been working towards getting to Antarctica to circumnavigate Antarctica by kite power. Right. Um, kites, similar to kite surfing kites, are a fairly new technology and just an amazing, incredibly efficient and exciting and somewhat unpredictable method of providing power. Because um, they've traversed, they've sledded, quite sled across Antarctica, haven't they? Yeah. Um, yeah, someone's Norwegian bloke, Ronnie's just gone from the pole to the coast in five days. Um, That's fast, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he did 500 k's in one day, one 24 hour period. That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. It's the kind of thing you can do on kites if the, if the conditions are all good. Yeah. We, we were hoping to do 500 k's in a, in, a, in a day on this trip. Um, so we'll have to better that now if we're going to do these records. Right. So where are you going? Uh, we're going to Hudson Bay, um, which is in northern Canada, and in the time we're going to be there, we'll be filled with ice, pack ice. Does the entire... I, I know I know Hudson Bay is this huge water mass. Is it all ice out? Yep. In winter, the whole thing ice is over, okay. but it's in the, it's mainly pack ice, which is jumbled and moving and... Broken and, and broken up and shards and yeah. crevasses. And but around the edge, there's it's called fast ice because it's stuck fast. Okay. Uh, and it it ranges from a kilometre to five k's out uh, from the coast. Right. And it's mainly flat, but varies, and it also has pressure ridges and there's some movement in it. And there's a couple of spots where big rivers come through and break it up and drag it out to sea. So you've got to go out to pack ice to get around them. Right. Uh, or go inland. So you're going to basically circumnavigating it, it the all, bay, It all started because Pat was on the net asking around um, for ideas for what what good preparation for Antarctica would be. Like, what's an environment that's easier to get to than Antarctica that approximates Antarctica, i.e. 
long stretches of flat snow and ice with good wind and um, and cold and cold and, and people started saying well well one guy in particular who'd been up there said that the fast ice around Hudson Bay is the closest thing I can think of to that. Okay. So, I mean, that's his opinion. <laughs> We've since realised that it's actually going to be very different to Antarctica and very different to anything Pat's ever done. Pat's been across Greenland and Norway and stuff. But So he's, he's experienced with the temperatures and travelling in that those sort of conditions. But uh, this is a maritime environment, we're realising. You know, there's, it's going to be... There's going to be movement. There's a risk of going through the ice. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of wildlife. There's going to be seals and whales and bears. Well, if the ice is thick enough that you can travel on it, you've got bears and that, but aren't the seals and all that stuff going to be way out in the middle of the bottom? They're, they're out in the pack ice, oh. um, and the bears hang out on the shore and cross the fast the ice to get to, to, the, get to the pack ice, to get to the, the seals. seals. To get to these crazy dudes with a kite yeah. who would taste just as good. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Uh, so when are you going? Mid March, off March seventeen. So about a month's time. Month's time. Okay. Yeah, five weeks. Yeah. So if anybody comes back and listens to this show in '09, they'll know how this has gone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would have read about it in the papers. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> it's one of those things. I mean, I think it's a trip that. You know, it could it could be quite cushy in the end. You know, uh, if some of the Everest climbs have been a walk in the park, they yeah. just walk up there, say hello, and walk down again. Yeah, yeah. And then and there's the a lot six of... one. It was a disaster. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, and we don't know. No. We just don't know. So it could be a nightmare. So you take this is this is the latest one. Mm. What other grand adventures have you done? Um, well. Uh, before I met you, I'd been into underwater stuff. I'd been cave diving. Mm, I remember um, you telling me about that. Yeah, went to the Cook Islands for three months. So, you know, got into cave diving with Horse. Yeah. Um, Who one day I'll have on this show too. Yeah, yeah. Because he's an important person to get on this project. Absolutely. Um, and, yes, and that was sort of, a, that was all in aid of getting to the Cook Islands to, to explore these caves that I'd found, I hadn't found, I'd been shown by the locals six years before that um, when I was sailing out there. How deep are they? Uh, we got to 85 metres in one of them and it seemed to go a bit deeper but we were so off our heads with narcosis that we couldn't really tell. Yeah. But yeah, it's... I remember seeing a photo that you brought into the workshop and I think you took the photo of horse, is it? And there's this tiny little image of this diver, and there was like six or eight groups of bubbles above him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's way off in the distance. It looks like 60 metres away. Yeah, yeah. It's just an extraordinary photo that you can see that far in water, yeah, clearly. Yeah, yeah, And you can tell how far away it is because of all these bubble groups. Mm. It's just an extraordinary image. Yeah, some goat shots in there. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was the 85-metre deep one. That was by Tango. Yeah. Right, right. And was it clear? It was clear going into it. Was it clear coming yeah. out, or did you disturb no, it? No, no, because we disturbed the, all the stuff on the ceilings. Yeah, we discovered... I mean, all the cave diving we'd done in Australia was in caves that were well trafficked down in Mount Gambia and all the ceilings had been cleaned by all the bubbles running over them for years right. so we found that once you, if you go into a virgin cave and, and breathe a whole lot of air all over it, it 
you just get rained on by bits of roof and horse ended up getting like a stalagmite stuck between his tanks that he that he had to actually finish the dive with like I think he adjusted his buoyancy to compensate for it and, and I pulled it out at the end of the dive <laughs> it jammed between his tanks and broke off I think it lay, lay in between his tanks yeah I'm not sure but yeah you know we, all, we both of us had reasonable chunks of roof fall on us at various points which was pretty just from the bubbles pretty unnerving yeah well very delicate caves you know like they're they'd been dry caves they'd had so they were limestone but yeah. they'd had when the when air goes through them and the stalagmites and all the spilotherms form they they're much harder than the underlying limestone usually so then they've been flooded and the limestone was dissolving behind all the spilotherms so you'd get stalagmites and stalactites and stuff hanging on by a little finger of brittle limestone okay and just the f- bit of movement from yeah. either the current or the bubbles enough to snap it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, when 9-11 happened, I remember it all blew up and, because we were working together. Yeah. And um, I remember you... Greatest artwork of 21st century. Go on. The greatest artwork? What does that mean? <laughs> well, you know, um, depending on how broad your definition of art is, um, you know... You know how broad my definition is. Yeah, it covers everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was an incredibly uh, audacious, mm-hmm. spectacular act. That unfolded in ways that even the terrorists wouldn't have imagined. Yeah. Probably would have unfolded it. Yeah, and a culmination of, you know, 20 years of incredibly ironic history, covert history, you know, the US creating the whole Islamist movement and everything, funding it in Afghanistan. Yeah. And then it turns back on itself. I oh, know, it's just just fantastic history. You know? <laughs> I, I thought it was an extraordinary event when it happened. Yeah, I remember yeah. being in the workshop. And oh, I remember, yeah, we were working on Breakaway on, on yeah. Matrix yeah. and we were all looking at it going, wow, that's great Breakaway. <laughs> that's right, we were too. That's right. Yeah, we were, we we're going, yeah, we'd, we'd, nobody would believe this if it was in a film. But, you know, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Too, too ridiculous, but amazing Breakaway. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but I remember shortly after that, we, you know, a couple months later, we had the break, Christmas break, and you were seriously considering doing something like go to Afghanistan. I thought that was the Christmas before. Well, maybe it wasn't. No, it was 2001. We worked together 2001 through oh, 2002. Right, right. I just wanted to get away from Christmas. Yeah. I just yeah. decided that but was the th- one place in the world you could go where there would be no Christmas. Yeah, that's right. But a war starting. <laughs> which I thought was an extraordinary, bizarre thing to want to do. Like, well, there probably was no more dangerous place on the planet at the level of that whole military uptake yeah. that was happening at the time. <laughs> probably probably, you probably would have gone, have gone and sat there with... Mr. and Mrs. Whoever. I probably would have been. At a totally pleasant time. Probably would have been rendered into some Pakistani torture cell. Well, yeah. But there's part of you that's attracted to that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. What's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Who. Why. Who is Dave Goldie in the sense of wanting to have these big experiences? What were you like as a kid? You know? When everybody else was, you know, studying, going to sc- going to scouts or outward bound and having those sort of organised adventures, were you the kid who was t- 
tying a vine to his ankle and jumping off the highest building? No, I've, I've never been a, a big um, daredevil, or, you know, risk taker. Um, you know, that, that I may look like one, but no, I mean, you know, I'm afraid, I'm scared of diving boards and, you know, those guys that jump off cliffs and stuff, I could never do that. It's right. the hell out of me. Um, so it's bigger than that. It's bigger than risk-taking daredevil stuff. It's more adventure. Yeah, yeah. So define it for me. Help me understand this. I, I don't know. I mean, it's really about just getting out there. It's really, it's inseparable from building something in the workshop that's new. You know, those things you build where you don't quite know what it's going to be when you start. Yeah. And, um, you know, you start and you muck around and it comes together. and In it, ways you could never predict. Yeah. And, and in the end, you've got this thing that no one had conceived of before. And like opening created. the fridge and seeing all these ingredients and going, I can make something interesting out of this. Yeah. And at the end of the night, you've sat down to a beautiful meal. Yeah. But you had no idea that you were going to make that until you got into it. Yeah, yeah. I get that. But preferably... It's not a fridge. It's like, you know, a cave somewhere, and there's no cooking gear. And well, you know, to keep to keep the kitchen, the kitchen analogy, um, yeah, you know, you haven't got any cooking utensils. Yeah, yeah. And it's three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, pull the ingredients and, out, and the stove doesn't. And work. you're completely off your head on LSD or something. <laughs> you, know, <that's, laughs> you know, like that would and be more interesting. And your mum's coming around. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I can, I can get that. I can get that. Because, you know, th- this program, this podcast thing, I've started this thing. I've got no idea where this puppy's going. Right. You know, out yeah, there, yeah. in two years' time, it might have been just a great experience and I've put it to bed and it could have turned into something else that yeah. I can't comprehend. And yeah, it's yeah. a great adventure for me. Yeah. Uh, That's the great thing about the internet as a whole. Like it's, I think so. It's simultaneously millions of people are all doing that. Yeah. We're yeah. all consuming it. So, uh, yeah. You're doing this adventure. You're working in the film industry, sort of. Less and less. Less and less. Mm-hmm. You're a tech. How'd yeah. you get into it? And the reason I'm asking this is there are people who are interested in doing the work that we've done. Right. How did you get into it? Um, I drifted into it. Um, I just, I'm good at building things. I Were you always good? Even yeah. as a kid? Were yeah, you yeah, always yeah, kids yeah. always knocking stuff together? Yeah, my dad had a, a, a good little workshop in the garage and, um, you know, he'd always fix things and I'd help him. And, um, yeah, you know, by 13, 14 or something, I was making surfboards and selling them at Christmas time. And um, I started making guitars and... Uh, you know, just bits and pieces. So I, I got a job. I had a vague idea I wanted to work in the film industry, so I got a job as a camera assistant general kind of roustabout uh, for Fontana Films, and they realised I could build things and got me to build things for them. I ended up working for a model maker that they'd hired, and uh, he said, oh, you can be a freelance model maker if you want to be, which I didn't know what one was. Um, so then I sort of ended up on the freelance model making circuit as a model maker and then that drifted into effects when the movie started really when Matrix came along that was my first Matrix 1 was my first right. effects movie where they okay. wanted they wanted model makers in effects to build stuff and then then I was in the effects 
world and from had you Had you done much mechanical building prior to that? Um, a bit. But yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't used a mill or a lathe really before. Only a few times before Matrix. So most of it was bench work. Yeah, and hand plastics. Hand. You know, I was, I was well and truly pigeonholed back then as a model maker. Model maker. Yeah. yeah whereas you're not even seen as model maker now. Are you? Oh no, a lot of people. That's stuck. A lot of people oh, really? still see that. Yeah. Okay. See me as that. But um, you know, uh, you know, and I, I mean, I don't go out and look for work. I do work with people that know me, so. Um, I don't really need to. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm sort of semi-applying for a job in San Francisco at the moment. Mm, so tell us about this. Oh, it's a. I mean, I don't know a heap about it. It's it's a startup company doing kite-powered um, kite-powered electricity generation, researching building giant kites attached to generators by two kilometre long wires, flying computers, flying kites two k's up. Sort of I can't even comprehend how they get power out of that. Well, I can understand as they wind the cable out, they can make well, they, generate power. They can they depower it and wind it in, right? And then they power it up and and fly it really fast, right? And that generates power. The thing about kites is they, unlike a sail on a boat, it can go from static to really fast, and the lift can multiply by five, ten times. Yeah, yeah. Well, back in my skydiving days, yeah, same yeah. thing happened. You know, yeah, yeah. powerful par- you know, parachutes. Yep. You just sort of change the profile of them, and they behave in all sorts of weird yeah. ways. And do a hook turn, and you get all this acceleration because you're dropping out of the sky. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can I can relate to some of that. And you, the G forces you feel sometimes being pulled. Well, if you can take that energy and whack it into put, put in a generator, mm-hmm. yeah, you can use it maybe. Yeah, yeah. interesting yeah, process. So, I don't know. They've got a bunch of really smart, you know, way smarter people than me. That, you know, engineer people but they need sounds like they need people in the workshop to build stuff right techies yeah yeah there's you know yeah you know people that can that have got experience in workshops so when will that happen so you i don't know i don't know if it's going to happen at all but um i'll be over there i'm going to drop in to see him on the way back from canada so how long is the canada trip going to take six weeks we'll be in country we'll probably be up in hudson bay for those weeks so four weeks doing minus 30 Getting across the bay. Minus thirty should be the coldest. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think in the middle of the day, later in later in the month, further south, we get we get up towards zero. I think. Right. Don't want to get to zero. Cause well, you actually don't want it to get too warm. No. no, no. Because you want. Don't want to get wet. You want yeah. You want frozen water. Yeah, and we don't want to get wet. Yeah. So. Yeah, and even if it just gets to one or two degrees, the surface is going to start melting. It's going to start mm. splashing water up on you, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and rain would. Rain, of course. Rain would kill us. So, uh, yeah. You worked on some of the uh, Sydney Olympics. Yeah. And um, you were there at the time of the actual ceremony. Yeah. Tell that story. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was going to miss the Olympics completely. I was working up in Port Douglas on a movie. I thought I was just going to miss the whole lot. And... uh, I ended up coming home early, you know, two weeks before the Olympics. And uh, a mate of mine, Barry, was building the lectern for the main speeches, the centre stage lectern thing. And there was a big drama that had just come up because Juan Tanio Samaranch, whatever his name, he was like five foot, and the, and the Australian bloke who was speaking was like six foot ten or something. So um, we had to put in this 
mechanism which raised and lowered the the microphone in between the speeches and with a remote control switch and I and then it was decided that I had to be there to operate the remote control switch. So the most cynical man in the country about the Olympics. I don't think anyone found the whole thing more distasteful than I did. I was at the centre <laughs> of it. So I was, I was with all of the potential to take, make a complete disaster of it, sabotage Yeah, that's it. right, that's right. And the time and the materials to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent like two hours with butterflies in my stomach before the closing ceremony or the opening ceremony, I can't remember which, just looking around and realising that there was like cardboard sheets there, cans of spray paint, and I could have written a sign saying fund education, not sport, and stripped off and, <laughs> and jumped up in front of Kylie Minogue or, and uh, you know biggest television audience in history it was, that was my chance to get my message in front of more people than I'll ever get again but you didn't do it did you? and I didn't do it I pushed out I was too scared yeah Oh, and that's, and that's, that became the first regret I've ever had in my life. Right, that you didn't make a huge statement to yeah. spend the night in the watch house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all that would have happened. And you would have gone down in history like the Chase yeah. Boys, probably. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I would have rest of my life would have been. You remember how that guy disrupted yeah. the yeah. Sydney Who was that? Don't know. He hasn't been around. We haven't seen him since. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to Dave? You know, he's gone. You know, they, they secreted him away and <laughs> crab meat or something now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, the, the current, what do you think about the current uh, political situation in Australia? I'm excited about Rudd. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, it's called Mr Cynic. You know, like, oh, yeah, I, well, no, I'm, I'm very excited about Rudd. Um, you know, I mean, I'm probably less cynical about politicians now, you know, um, than I've ever been. Becoming more conservative, are you? Oh, yeah, probably, yeah. The experience that I mentioned to you before of um, renovating my block of units in Harbour that I own, being on the executive committee of the body corporate for that for two years or something as we spent two and a half million bucks and you know made all sorts of decisions and on behalf of 50 owners um, that really gave me a fresh look at politicians in parliament and it's, it's just so hard to get people to agree on things to get anything to happen you know to get something to happen like that which only involved 50 people and two and a half million bucks just took it took Two years of work from me and, you know, two or three years of setting up and lobbying and politicking and stacking the numbers on the executive committee before that for other people just to make that happen. Right. All for the greater good of everybody, you'd say. Yeah, well, most people would agree. Some people wouldn't. Yeah. Um, You know, that's parliament. That's just a tiny little microcosm of running a country, you know. So, and the problem... I don't. I no longer see the problem as self-serving, career-minded, dim-witted solicitors like Johnny Howard. The problem is the voters. The reason Howard gets up there and says stupid things like, you know, if you elect this government, interest rates will go up because they can't manage the economy, and is because people will believe it. You know, and now Rudd is saying that, you know, oil prices, you know, petrol prices are up because of the last government. I mean, and people actually believe in that shit. I mean, 
I mean, I don't. I think Howard was a, was just a disaster for Australia in a lot of ways. But um, you know, I'm really glad that era is over. But uh, if Australians weren't so dim-witted, there's no way they would have elected him. And, you know, we we have the politicians we deserve. That's a classic saying. I was, that was bouncing around my mind. I was just waiting for the opportunity. It's true. Yeah, it's true. Um, and and if, Rudd, you know, Rudd's biggest problem is that the economy's going to turn turn sour because it's got to because we've had a boom for the yeah. last twelve years, um, and he's going to be blamed for it, which doesn't make any sense at all. And it's just a cycle. It'll probably stick. Yeah. What I like about Rudd is, and I read in the paper on the weekend, is that he's planning for his second term. Right. He's yeah. Got, he's got long-term goals. Yeah. Yeah. I, know, I mean, that's I think unheard of that for a politician to be planning six and eight years in yeah, advance. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, I from what I've read of Rudd, um, I read his one of his biographies, the unauthorized biography, a little while ago. Right. If half of that's true, he's the best prime minister material we've had in years. Yeah. I reckon. Yeah. I found. I read a, a bit about that biography, and I, I want to go and dig it up yeah, for the same yeah, reason. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like he could be. This is what I've been saying for years. I've been saying we don't have statesmen. We yeah. don't have any statesmen. The yeah, re- yeah. reason historically you get statesmen is because we get a crisis like a war. You know, yeah. the Churchills turn up, and the Roosevelts, and the Abraham Lincolns, and the. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know if Australia really deserves statesmen. I, mean, I think we do. I think we have. We have had them in the past during crisis, during wartime. Yeah. You know, they appear for a moment. Maybe not even their full term. They're there for a crisis when they lead yeah. instead of organise followers and follow themselves and pussyfoot around. Yeah. Know, statesmanship, I believe, is true, strong leadership. And, yeah, yeah. Um, done for the right reasons. I don't know if Australians are really going to get behind a real statesman. I think they will. I think they will. In, in what circumstance? Um, I, think, I think if Rudd can pull off the statesman card and show right, we're going in this direction because this is for the greater good. And frankly, there is a crisis. It's called global change. We're going to take. We're going to go down this path. Yet we're going to keep an eye on the Jap- Japanese whalers. We're going to do what we can to sort of manage that. He's mm. proactive on that. Mm. We're going to say sorry. We're going to lead from the front foot. We've got this work yeah, to do. Yeah, we're out there. Yeah. Let's let's make this happen. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, he's having a twenty twenty meeting later in the later in a couple of months time or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. A thousand of the brightest people in Australia, and he wants to sit down and talk to them. I don't know everything. It sounds like what he's saying. Mm. Tell me what we should be doing, and you're going to hear stories of we should be going down this technology, embracing this, dumping that, you know, shut down the coal industry, forget about nuclear, let's get hot rock going, mm. you know, all this stuff. And and then if he acts on that, that'll be the true measure of his metal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I'm very excited about him. Yeah. Don't get me wrong about that. Yeah. It's... He's my local member too. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, well... Just his, just his pedigree, you know, uh, you know, a life... His whole family's been involved in public service. You know, his mother's a nurse. His brother was a nurse for a while. His sister's a nurse. His brother went into the army, and now he's in he's in Canberra. Right. He, you know, I mean, Rudd himself had a career as a lawyer, and you know, you know, he could have made as much money as he wanted. And he's he's always chosen. He took a year off after school. I heard he was reading Hansard at 15 for pleasure. Right. (laughs) You know, like, that's weird. But, hey, fair enough, that's your passion, go for it. And he he didn't grow up uh, in any, even probably middle-class family. No. Lower lower middle-class. Oh, yeah, yeah, Yeah. struggling rural family. Yeah, they were in Struggle Street. Tenant farmers, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, left school with, with... 
Duxter School. Duxter School, you know. And then surprised everyone by saying, oh, no, I don't really know what I want to do. I'm going to take a year off. And he went and worked in, as a cleaner. And he, and he cleaned Laurie Oakes' toilet. Really? <laughs> um, you know, he went to Taiwan to learn Chinese and see Asia. And, you know, like he's... And, it, and this is something I was talking to my daughter about. If we're going to embrace Asia as our near neighbour... We've got the man on man for the job, oh, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean, everyone and, knows. and that little that that APAC last year when he uh, met the Chinese premier and just spoke to him. Yeah, yeah. You know, like and a lot of people said that's that was, a huge thing for China. A lot of people said he was showing off, but hey, if we had the French prime minister here and they spoke in English to us, we'd think that was cool yeah. and appropriate, wouldn't well, we? We'd expect it. We do expect it, which yeah. is a bit twisted. Yeah. We expect the Chinese Premier to come here with a translator, and if they can speak English, well, so be it. Mm. So why not our Prime Minister speak in a foreign language mm. to them? I think it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, having just been in China and seen how impressed the Chinese are, I mean, they... They're impressed with... Right. People who can speak ah. English... Any Westerner who can speak English. Oh, you mean, mean can speak Chinese? Uh, sorry, yes, who can speak Chinese. It's yeah. got, you know, automatic credentials over there. Right. Yeah, no, they, I mean, they know how hard it is. And, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a big deal for the Chinese. Yeah, and I've heard that he's all but fluent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> and Downer. <laughs> Downer's comment about it was hilarious. About the fact that he... Downer he, he learnt French. And, yeah. and he could have learned Chinese if he wanted to, yeah, but he yeah. chose French. It's just that he got trained up in Chinese, and yeah. what's a big deal about yeah. this? Yeah, I've yeah. heard that. I thought, oh, talk about sound then, bloody grapes. Yeah, yeah. And then he was, there was some incident after that where he met down and met the French... Uh, consul or something, and all the journalists were craning. Let's hear the fluent French. Yeah, yes. and he didn't utter a word. Apparently, really. But yeah. Downer and Rudd hate each other, or Downer hates Rudd right. because they were in foreign affairs together. And, yeah. and Rudd was sort of this upstart kid that outshone Downer because he probably had some talent. Yeah, he's a lot smarter than Downer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But Downer, Downer wears fishnets and high heels well, too, I've heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, OK, we might wrap this up. Um, so uh, you've got the Hudson Bay trip coming up. Yep. And then maybe a lifestyle in California, eh? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. And we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Any other grand adventures after that? Um, well, my mate's just bought a yacht. An yeah. old clanger of a yacht that's going to get us out to Ball's Pyramid to climb oh, off uh, Ball's Pyramid, off, off Lord Howe. Off Lord Howe. Yeah, yeah, 600 metre stack out in the middle of the ocean. Is it vertical? It's near vertical. Yeah, I think, some people, I think some people have base jumped off it. Oh, really? Or have talked about base jumping off it. Yeah, I don't know if they would have base jumped because it's not that kind of vertical. Right, is it? Okay, I remember hearing something about it. You know, the and extreme sport boys were you know, talking about that sort of stuff. It'd be quite a prize, but I, I think it'd be a bit difficult. Yeah, okay. But I it's, it's hard enough to climb because it's banned. You're not allowed on it. Why not? Um, Birds and sanctuary. And wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, there's a phasmid there. There's a um, a what? A phasmid. What's a, a phasmid? Um, a stick insect. Oh, okay. Which is it was on Lord Howe, but the rats ate it, and yeah. then they found it on Paul's Pyramid and. It's the only place that exists in the world, so right. that's the that's their reason. Right. Um, but you know, it's it's one of the great uh, you know 
ocean spires in the world, and it's it's our in our front yard. Yeah. You know, like climbers, Australian climbers generally, you know, look overseas for classic big wall routes, but that's our front yard. How far away is it? Oh, that's uh, sorry, it's three days sail. Okay, but you've, sorry, how tall is it? Six hundred metres. See, from that's pretty tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a stunning bit of rock. Yeah. It's like it's perfect. I first saw it when I sailed into Lord Howe when I was nineteen, and it was. Like a grey morning, and I was the I was on deck. I had the more, the dawn watch, and I remember there was a whale on either side of the boat somewhere. I could hear them breathing, and then out of the grey, I started to discern this slither, this grey slither of rock. A ghost ship out. coming at you out of the yeah. It's no, amazing. It's, it's like it's like something off the cover of one of those cheesy fantasy novels, you know? Right. It's quite quite a stunning right. thing. Okay. And it's just out there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe you'll do that in the next year or two. Yeah, that's the plan. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's a website that is attached to this. I'll post on that how the uh, expedition goes yeah, when right. you get back. Yeah, yeah. And depending on how it goes, we might do a, a follow-up episode. Yeah, yeah. About how it turned out. Sure. Maybe do a specialist podcast just about the Hudson Bay trip. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and what that adventure was like. We'll see how it goes. So, okay. Dave Goldie, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ian. A lot of fun. See you, mate. Cheers, mate. There are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.